In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The text for this morning's sermon is the Gospel appointed for this second Sunday of Epiphany. The Gospel according to St. John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thus far the gospel, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus has been invited to a wedding along with his disciples. His mother is also there. Weddings were different back then. Today, a couple gets engaged. There is a period of engagement followed by a wedding. During the wedding... The couple is legally married. Usually there is a reception, a wedding reception. And then the couple darts off on a honeymoon. And that's it. They're married. Back then, when people got engaged, that was the big legal contractual Formality. From that point on, they were legally married, even though they did not dwell under one roof as yet. The groom would then prepare a wedding feast. So much better these days, the bride's wife has, the bride's family has to do it. But this 
feast that the groom would prepare included food and drink, especially wine. The groom would then go to the home of the bride and take her home to live with him. As they headed for his home, they were joined by family and friends. Once at the groom's home, the feasting would begin. It would often last for a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on how wealthy the groom was. The longer it lasted, the more prestige that couple was going to have probably for the rest of their lives. But it was important not to miscalculate. If the groom were to run out of wine before the feast was supposed to be over, that would be a catastrophic social blunder from which his reputation would probably never recover. And, of course, when the wine was gone, the party was over. So back to the wedding our Lord is attending. The Gospel according to St. John gives us a shocking view of Jesus. And this text is no exception. Notice that Jesus was about, miraculously, to make wine. Good wine. Normally, according to the banquet master, the strategy worked like this. Give them the best wine first. After they'd had enough of that, that their senses were dulled and they would no longer be the refined wine connoisseurs that perhaps they were when they showed up, then they'd be less picky. And that's when you bring out the second-rate vintages of wine because at this point they can't tell the difference anyway. But definitions here. The good wine has alcohol in it sufficient to dull their senses to when the wine isn't as good. And concerning the wine which Jesus had just miraculously made, the banquet master refers to it as the best wine. Jesus made wine. If drinking any wine, even a responsible quantity, were a sin... Jesus would never have done this. Notice that it says he used six jars, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. A little quick math. 
tells you that we are now talking about somewhere in the range of 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And I don't want to belabor this more than necessary, but Jesus made wine, Jesus drank wine, and Jesus was sinless. So it's not a sin to drink, and don't let anyone tell you it is. Conversely, as the Scriptures say, be not drunk with wine, do not weaken yourself, or bring shame to the church or your family or your own self by being excessive. But don't let anyone tell you that even a drop is sin either. Notice also, Jesus was attending a wedding. We touched on this a little bit in Bible class this morning. Our Lord not only makes you holy, makes life holy. He makes enjoying life holy. They are having a celebration and Jesus is celebrating with them. God wants you to enjoy this life. It is a gift He has given you. So, someone may challenge that then. Oh, yeah? Then why does he forbid? Name it. Drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, gluttony, all those fun things, right? Consider wisdom that even an unbeliever can figure out. Alcohol can ruin your life. I've been to funerals of mostly men who have died of cirrhosis of the liver. You can get AIDS and die from fooling around. And there's all the other physical and psychological damage that you can do to yourself and to others by breaking these or any of God's commands. God forbids some things so that you can really enjoy life. He's not trying to ruin your fun. He's looking out for you. God permits other things. Again, so that we can really enjoy life. He most certainly is not the author of this silly idea. If it's fun, don't do it. When you think of a quote-unquote good Christian, what do you think of? Someone with that 
awful scowl on their face, who never laughs, always wears black, maybe carries a 30-pound Bible around with them wherever they go. I've got news for you folks. That's not saintly. That's... See if I can get this right. Well, that's stupid. God calls Christians to a holy enjoyment of life. And following His commandments is the best way to live an enjoyable life. There is a time to mourn and a time to laugh. Our epistle touched on that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There is a time for fasting and a time for feasting. Do all of these things in their proper time and all to the glory of God. Well, back to the wedding. Apparently, this is only the first day of the wedding, yet the wine is already gone. Mary comes to Jesus and informs Him of the situation. Curious? What did she expect Him to do about it? We read that this was the first of His miraculous signs. He hadn't done any miracles before this. But Mary had been treasuring in her heart the things she had heard and seen and observed about Jesus ever since He was born. We've heard about this the last couple of weeks. She knew who He was. She believed in His power. She must have known that He had the power to perform miracles if He wanted. But do note, she just lays the matter before Jesus. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, Son, I've done the thinking here. I don't need you for that. I just need your power. Here's what needs to happen. Now do that. No, she lays the matter before Jesus and lets her son, who is also God, determine what to do. Jesus had in mind to change more than just water that day. He was going to change some people too. Even Mary... She believed in Jesus. She lays the matter before Him. Did she have in the back of her mind what she wanted Him to do? We do that sometimes. We don't always keep it in the back of our mind. We sometimes explicitly say it. Sure, we believe in Jesus. But we act as though our believing in Him gives us the right to expect certain things of Him. I believe in you, Jesus. 
So, why was it some guy from a podunk town in Maine who won the lottery yesterday? Or, I love you, Jesus, but I feel awful today. Make me better. Faith believes that Jesus can work a miracle, but it is a miscarriage of faith to expect Jesus to do whatever we tell Him to. We should rather boldly, cheerfully, approach the throne of grace with our prayers and petitions and then trust God to know and to do whatever's best for us. At least outwardly, that's what Mary's prayer does. But Jesus drives the point home. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? He means no disrespect to his mother, but Jesus has to remind her that she can't make Jesus the servant of her will. Just like we can't make Him the servant of our will. Faith receives what Jesus gives us. Faith doesn't demand that Jesus give us whatever we want. Jesus reminds Mary that she is to submit to Him and not He to her. And by the way, Mary, especially in John's writings, is often used as something of a picture of the church. So there's a message here for us, too. Mary believed in Jesus, so do we. The issue here is not whether you're really a Christian or whether or not you're really saved. You are. But as believers, as people saved by the grace of God, how often, and apologies to those of you in the Bible class, but we spoke of the same thing there. How often do we try to put ourselves in the driver's seat and ask God to function as our power steering. We want God to give us a better income. But we don't want to place our spending habits under God's direction. We want God to help our kids, or for most of us now, maybe it's our grandkids, to grow up to be good, responsible, Christian adults, But are we willing to fulfill what He calls us to do in their lives? Such as you are able, take time to be with them. And more specifically, read God's Word and pray with them. Let God's Word go to work on you as it did on Mary and then go to work through you on them.
Let God's Word transform your thinking into this mindset. O Lord, here I am. Do with me as You wish. O Lord, here's the situation. I lay it before You. Handle it as You know to be best. With a word, Jesus changes Mary. Jesus is Mary's Savior, not her little miracle man. He calls her back to this truth. Once she gets the point, watch how she changes. Instead of trying to get Him to do what she wants, she tells the servants to do whatever He tells them. And I remind you, Mary, as a picture of the church, this is also the church's message. Do whatever He tells you. By the way, I believe this, these are the last words you ever hear out of St. Mary's mouth in the Gospel according to St. John. Do whatever He tells you. That's the last thing she has to say. Acting on our faith, we stand ready to do whatever He tells us to do. Then Jesus does what He in His divine wisdom deems to be right. And felicitously, that is also what Mary probably wanted him to do in the first place. He turns water into wine. Not a stopgap fix. Okay, a couple of gallons until you can send a servant off to the store to buy more. Oh no. He didn't give them just enough cheap wine to get them through the evening until morning. When Jesus responds to the problem, <laughs> He solves the problem. He makes the best imaginable wine and He makes enough that there is no way that they are going to run out. We had a problem too. We summarize that problem every Sunday morning with the words, poor, miserable sinner. We didn't have a little holiness reserve that if Jesus would add just a bit more to it, we'd have enough to get by. Just like the bridegroom, we were on empty. We were completely bereft of any holiness, we were nothing but, by nature, sinful and unclean. In baptism, Jesus changed us from sinners into saints. On the day that we go to be with the Lord in heaven, that sinner part will be completely gone. Even now it might as well be, when God looks at us, He sees Nothing but saint 
in as much as all else is under the blood of Christ and forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He washed away our sins. He keeps on forgiving our sins. He keeps on washing them away <clears throat> by the power of holy baptism as it continues to work in us. And just like He gave the bridegroom more than enough wine, so also in baptism and in holy absolution and in holy communion, Jesus gives us more than enough forgiveness. We didn't hear the bridegroom saying, or the master of the ceremony, oh no, that's too much. I don't need that much wine. So also, we wouldn't dream of telling the Lord, oh no, that's too, I don't need that much forgiveness. If He graciously gives us more than we need, so much the better. Faith receives it all and says thank you. St. John records exactly seven of Jesus' miracles. He calls them, as in this text, signs. There's a reason for that. Jesus didn't do miracles just to impress folks. He does them so that they and we will believe in Him. Signs tell us something. Jesus' miracles are signs that tell us that He's our Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. The disciples read the sign correctly. They put their faith in Him. They are the next people Jesus changes in this morning's Gospel. They saw the sign as a revelation of Jesus' glory and by the grace of God, they respond correctly. They put their faith in Him. They already believed Him, but now they trust Him more than ever. Well, great. Why tell us? Well, of course, it's so we will believe in Him too. But John is very clear about his purpose. If we leaf forward to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the Holy Apostle writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. No mystery there. The purpose John had for recording this miracle, the purpose the Holy Spirit had for causing John to write every 
word he wrote was simply this, so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in his name. We rejoice to see the miracle of salvation worked again. Every time God in the waters of holy baptism takes one who is by nature sinful and unclean and creates of them yet another saint in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice further that by His holy word and in holy communion, God continually renews and strengthens the gift of faith in each of us. As you have this very day heard again of Jesus' first miraculous sign in which He turned water into wine, God grant to you even in this very moment the renewal and the strengthening of your faith. And as our Lord Jesus Christ will shortly undertake to perform an even greater miracle, greater than turning water into wine, turning bread and wine into vehicles of His body and blood, God the Holy Spirit grant each of you to receive it repentantly, faithfully, for the forgiveness of your sins, that thereby He would strengthen you in the one true faith unto life everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.